That's Enough Out of You podcast is sponsored by Todd John's Law. Unfortunately, bad things happen to good people, whether it's the result of an auto accident caused by the carelessness of another driver or being charged with a crime. Dealing with the aftermath of a personal injury accident or being involved with the criminal justice system can be extremely difficult. That's why, whatever you're facing, you should never go it alone. You need an experienced attorney who will stand by you every step of the way. Todd is experienced, licensed, trusted, respected, and guaranteed. No one will work harder or more diligently on your behalf, and he will personally handle your case from beginning to end. Located on Drinker Street in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, Todd has been representing the legal rights of Scranton and Wilkesbury personal injury victims and those accused of a crime for over 20 years. At Todd John's Law, the utmost priority is ensuring that your rights are always protected and that your case is resolved as quickly and fairly as possible so that you can move on with your life. Call Todd John's Law at 570-876-6903. With Todd John's Law, you will receive equal justice under the law. Hello and welcome to That's Enough Out of You. I am your host, Bill Rader, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Sean Kane. Sean, what's going on? Billy Raids, how you doing today in this windstorm, buddy? Ah, I, I'm I'm still I'm still here. I, I was um, so as we record this, we're about uh, two two weeks, three weeks actually, um, since uh, since the Christmas holiday, and I finally was uh, had some time to take all of the lights down outside on the house, and I was like, <laughs> if you know, I was like hanging on to the. Uh, to the posts for the, on the front porch. With yeah, the wind. the wind is bad, buddy. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And then, uh, you know, of course, as I'm up on the on the little step ladder, the, the there was a snow squall, so I couldn't see anything. But uh, I got I got all the lights down. That's the important thing. Plus, you're thousands of feet up on that big hill, Billy. Right, I'm looking down on uh, on everybody. So, yeah, the the weather is is different here than it is down. It's probably a difference of about twenty degrees, right? So, Oh yeah, down down in my house at the bottom of your street. Yeah. 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 So uh yeah, it's it's you know, I'll um well we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, we got a guest today, Billy, but before we get to that, we got I think we got a little bit of an issue we gotta bring up. Well for, before we even get to that issue, Sean, one one quick thing. Um go ahead. So as I said, we you know, we we were recording this um middle of January. And um, uh, our uh, friend of the friend of the podcast, Rick Otto, just appeared on another friend of, of the podcast, uh, Bruce de Torres, on his show, World Stage, and gave us a shout out. So uh, I just want to thank Rick and thank Bruce for that. Um, great you know, guys. Great guys. Yeah, absolutely. We love having them on on our show and, and uh, we love going on Bruce's show. So uh, yeah, Rick, we thank you for um, for that shout out. Uh, always love it when, when you come on. And um, yeah, it's just nice to hear that, you know, our names kind of mentioned with some of these other, uh, you know, really uh, cutting edge shows out there that that uh, tr- are trying to do the same thing that we're trying to do, which is tell the truth. And that always comes with a price, Billy, and we're going to talk about that now. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Sean. Why don't we talk about that? Well, you know, we're on 
like 30 different applications. You know, a lot of people list, like to listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, et cetera, the traditional podcast apps. But some people do like to listen to us on YouTube. And what I noticed on YouTube, and I noticed this for, for a while now, is that our episodes will be the the views on the episodes will be go they'll be at one level and then all of a sudden instead of going up they're going down and then they'll go up for a little bit and then they'll go down and I started to track the last you know I don't know dozen episodes or so and I noticed like hundreds of hundreds of views are getting gutted and um you know the one we have up on Whitey Bulger right now that's been gutted terribly. Um, the one that Rick Otto, the last one, speaking of Rick Otto, that he was on, uh, that got gutted, unbelievable. I mean, there had to be over 500 views that that got gutted out of that. Um, and, of course, you know, me and you talked about that, and you talked about the bot program that they have that they run right. and stuff. Yeah. But then I talked to Rick about it, and Rick sent me a nice link um, about this, this doctor that did a study on the, the algorithms that YouTube uses. And what they do, Bill, is they target shows like ours, you know, that that the algorithms go after shows that, that you know, kind of go against the official record, the official story that the government puts out there. And they do this. They gut the views. You know, they censor different things. They demonetize shows for various reasons. Uh, they, you know, one of the things they do to us is they put that stupid Wikipedia disclaimer on our episodes, right. like the ones with Jim and Lisa and the ones that say, you know, Oswald, the ones we talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, they'll put out the, you know, the Wikipedia page that says Oswald was the lone assassin. And basically, yeah. you know, that these two guys are just, you know, telling you a bunch of lies. And then the one we did, you know, the one in Vietnam, they put out a disclaimer on that talking about, you know, uh, that Kennedy didn't change much and this and that. So anything that you try to tell the truth. They put that garbage out there on, and, and it's just dishonest, Bill. It's just, you know, YouTube's owned by Google. And I'm so glad I sold my Google stock. Um, it's just typical what you talked about a little while ago, Bill, corporate America. And this is corporate America at its worst. Yeah. You know, it's it's just it's just garbage, Bill. It's completely yeah. garbage, you know, and, and it's terrible. And, you know, that with, with they do this with a lot of shows, and it's not, you know, I don't think... It's they, not just us. It's right, the, they, the algorithms, yeah. Bill, if you watch this video, and, and Rick Otto has a link, uh, I'm going to try to put it on my, on my social media, but uh, the doctor explains how, you know, this professor, he explains how these algorithms target certain shows, and they, they go after the, the hashtag certain things, and they see, like, JFK or something, and they, they target those shows. And and it doesn't matter like shows like Joe Rogan where he's got, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands sure. of views or you know millions of views even doesn't really matter with with those shows to sponsors. They're still gonna you know they're still gonna. But when with us when it's the difference between you know hundred views and maybe five hundred views, that's that really makes a difference for us you know and and it it's really sucks that that we have to deal with that. I mean, obviously, you know, what are we going to do? YouTube controls it. We, we, you know, it's a it's a free platform. We don't really have much in the way of options if we want to get our, you know, our uh, content out there. But uh, yeah, it really does suck the way they uh, the way they you know they do that. They cut you know cut views. They demonetize. I mean, we really should have a lot more views than than what's showing there, and we really should be you know. I mean, they are running ads on our on our shows, Sean. I know we're, we're not getting paid for them like we are with the other ones. Like I, Apple doesn't do this. Spotify, the other 
you know, the ones that we use through Buzzsprout, all of those, we don't have any issues with those. Right. You know, they don't, they don't take views away. They don't demonetize. They don't, you know, we're able to get for ads there. And it's just, you know, YouTube is just, it's just a joke, Billy. And it's just, you know, and the reason we still continue to put on YouTube is because I know talking to a lot of our listeners on social media, they like to listen on YouTube. So as long as, you know, our viewers want it, we'll put it on YouTube. But, you know, when you when you look at it and you see, oh, this only had 100 views. Well, you got to understand that's garbage because they gutted it. You know, like Rick Otto, he, he would have been like over a thousand views just on YouTube. And they they just gutted the episode. They just took all those views away. You know, and, and the stuff with when we have Jim on and Lisa and I see that stupid Wikipedia uh, thing they put on there. It's just so it, it's really just, you know, it's disgusting, Billy. It's disgusting because, you know, we know the evidence. We know what the evidence shows. And they're just putting out this lie and they're tagging it to our uh, video. And we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. You know, right. corporate yeah. America, buddy. Yeah. So, you know, this means a couple couple different things, Sean. It means that, um, you know, we obviously we're trying to, you know, trying to make a little bit of money doing this. Um, so we're going to start running, you know, ads, uh, a lot more ads uh, on our show. Um, we've got some some sponsors lined up and uh, we, you know, we thank them. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we, we started basically we put the word out that, you know, we were looking for sponsors. We're looking for small businesses that want to um, advertise on our show, uh, local businesses, local to us. And not, uh, not all the local, we got right. some that are national. And, and, and that's, you know, and that's what we're, that's what we're, we're looking to do. So, um, you know, if you're listening to our program and you have a small business and you think, Hey, you know what? Uh, want to increase my, maybe my online commerce or increase my visibility um, let us know. I mean, we're happy to, we've gotten, a, a you know, a, a pretty sizable number of responses, Sean, uh, sponsors yeah. so far. So hopefully we can continue that. Yeah, we're doing good, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, this YouTube thing is just frustrating, but, uh, you know, we'll deal with it. We'll continue to deal with it and, um, is what it is, Billy, but just so people yeah. know, you know, this is, this is what's happening and it's not just us, but it's any podcast that's, you know, going against the grain a little bit, they're, they're going to be targeted. Yeah. You know? And and the other thing is, Sean, there are there are some of our uh, episodes on YouTube that have, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred views. And the, I, I know I've said this before and I'll keep saying it. The crazy thing is we have all these views. We only have about one hundred and seventy some subscribers on our YouTube channel. You have to wonder if the subscribers, the same thing's happening there, Billy. I, I don't know about that, Sean, because they keep, I don't know either. Steadily go up. I, I've never seen any taken away. That's true. I so, haven't either. But. But but I would like to encourage you know if you're listening to to our show just you know hit that subscribe button um, we would really really appreciate it it does it you know it it helps us uh, it it you know brings us up as far as the the you know the algorithm with with shows when people are searching for things so you know if you like what you're hearing even if you don't like what you're hearing hit that subscribe button and uh, you know get, it it helps us for sure yeah it definitely does yeah. All right, Sean. What else? Anything else before we get to our uh, our guest today? No, I think we're good, Billy. I think we're good. We, you know, got that off our chest because that that's just been frustrating. It's just been aggravating for a long time, and it's it's typical corporate America, buddy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Freedom of speech, buddy. You know, except if you say something they don't like. Well, that's yeah. Well, that's a that's a topic for a different day. I think. Uh... Yeah, we won't get into um, that. 
but you know, we, we have a great guest coming on today. Um, so without further ado, here we go with Jason. So Jason Voivich joins us from uh, sunny Naples, Florida. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's uh, the you are correct. The weather is wonderful here. Uh, it usually is. So we're uh, uh, very happy. Uh, great to meet you guys and great to be on the show. Yeah. Likewise, Jason is great the to author. Meet you, Jason. Yeah. Jason is the author of uh, two books. Uh, the first one will, we'll, uh, let's see, Marketer in Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea and Booze Babe and the Little Black Dress, How Innovators of the Roaring Twenties Created the Consumer Revolution. Uh, I hope I got those titles correct. Did I, Jason? No, it's perfect. Thank you. All right. All right. Great. So some, yes, yeah, some really cool uh, uh, ideas and topics with, uh, in those books. And uh, Shauna, we'll, we'll get it kicked off. Yeah. So, Jason, before we get into the specifics of, of both of the books, um, do you want to just give a little introduction uh, on yourself and uh, why you wrote these books uh, um, before we get into the specifics? Yeah, you know, I uh, I am a practicing uh, fractional chief marketing officer. So that means I, uh, you know, I market my own service to uh, multiple smaller and mid-sized organizations. Uh, my background is mostly in upstream product marketing, uh, developing new products and bringing them to market. And I'm just an overall curious person. I love history. I've been a, uh, a long-time listener, first-time caller sort of things. So, you know, for me, writing history books was kind of a way to give back. That's it's one of the big reasons that I, I wrote these books. But I think the other big one is, as I you know, as I practice my own craft and I read history out there and I just read voraciously, it's one of the perspectives that I never really got. I never got, you know, there were histories of, you know, political campaigns. There were histories of presidents. There was histories of, you know, kind of consumer culture and new innovations, uh, you know, the railroads, automobiles, you know, airplanes, you name it. But I never really saw any of those books written from, my perspective, you know, what it was, what it would be like to kind of develop and market those products. And how do you, how do you communicate? It's kind of like uh, historians are great at telling history, but most of them have never been in the field. They really haven't done the job. So it's kind of like asking a historian to write about carpentry. That's great. They can write a great story about carpentry, but it's really different to get a story about the history of carpentry from a carpenter. And that's sort of the same idea. I wanted right. to give I wanted to give the market that perspective. So that's why that's why I did it. I love doing it. I love my field, and I thought this is a perspective that was missing out in the marketplace. Interesting. Um, so let's get into the, the first book. I want to talk about Marketer in Chief. Uh, kind of give us an overview of the book. You know, I think the most important thing that we don't think about that much anymore as Americans, really, uh, is that the United States is an innovation in and of itself. You know, when you think about the, you know, we, we think about democracy kind of going back to the Greek and Roman traditions, but modern, kind of the modern democracy is a really new idea, This this kind of American idea that it wasn't about being Greek or being Roman or being French or having a king or having a military dictator. That the American idea was a new thing. 
uh, you know, in the in the 1770s. It was an idea of a government of laws, but not people. You know, so it wasn't a personality. It wasn't a king. It wasn't, you know, that you had enough firepower. It was a new way to, uh, it was an innovation in government, kind of, uh, you know, by the people, for the people. And we sometimes forget about that as, you know, uh, as Americans. And I wanted to kind of think about that as, you know, being in product development and innovation. I thought, what an interesting way to recast how, what the challenges that different presidents faced is if they were trying to launch a new product. And, you know, people like George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, you know, those first few folks were kind of like startup leaders. You know, those are the kind of people who had to, there, were, there weren't even blank forms. Think about it for a second. You're running a government and there isn't even a piece of paper that says, name goes here. Right, yeah. They had to create everything. And yeah. is that so unlike a modern startup that you kind of, you wake up and you think, okay, I've got this new widget I'm coming to the market with. And there's nothing. I got to create everything from a blank sheet of paper. And that just, it gave me such a new perspective uh, to kind of look at each one, a different pair of glasses to wear. And I found that many of the histories of the presidents were pretty lacking in that regard. They just didn't look at it that way. I, I just think no one had thought to look at it, look at it that way before. Uh, so that's the big idea. So I cover every every single president. It's not just the cool president or the, the ones people have heard of. Uh, you know, there's a chap there's a chapter on Franklin Pierce. There's a chapter on James K. Polk. I mean, there are people uh, that most of us would not get right on trivia night at the bar, but they're worth talking about because they yeah. faced a different challenge than we do today. And it's uh, it's just a different way to look at it. So that's the big idea behind the book. So let's talk about how each president sold that American idea. And and let's go over uh, the best and worst uh, presidents from a marketing perspective. Let's start start with the five best. Yeah, you know, uh, and this is your listeners are going to be thinking in their mind, all right, I, I know who I'm looking for and who I'm thinking in my mind. <laughs> but we can have really different ideas of who made a great leader right made a great marketer and these are right. different things these are really different things so let's start with the easy ones hey uh ronald reagan no question he wasn't known as the great communicator for nothing uh even the democrats in the 1980s and i'm a child of the 1980s so uh, i grew up with ronald reagan everyone understood how good he was at this uh, uh walter mondale from uh where i grew up in minnesota learned it the hard way Right. Uh, you know, very much. And I tell that story in the book that it's one of the examples of how good he was at that. But when you think about the best marketers and the best communicators, you got to go back a little further uh, than that. So there are a few that let's let's kind of use this to go back in time. OK. And uh, and go backwards. Now, our parents and our grandparents probably remember Harry Truman. And, uh, you know, for most of us, you know, he, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was the guy that had to take over from Roosevelt. Those are uh, not easy shoes to fill. A uh, great communicator in his own right. You know, but if we remember the 1948 campaign 
Uh, you remember that's one of the most famous political images anyone's ever seen is the Harry Truman holding up the newspaper that says Dewey defeats Truman. Truman, right? Yeah. Right. Come from behind. And most people forget, guys, that Harry Truman did not only beat Governor Dewey, he also beat two other Democrats, you know, the kind of a progressive wing and a conservative wing of the Democratic Party. He had to be two Democratic challengers and the Republican. So, you know, this was uh, this was epic on a scale that I think most people today wouldn't quite understand. It would it would be as if George W. Bush beat Clinton and uh, and Perot and another dude uh, right. that was out there who who we who never showed up. So. Obviously, really, uh, you know, uh, worth studying. Let's go back even further to Calvin Coolidge. Uh, you know, uh, it, we can talk about Calvin Coolidge, and I talk a lot about that. He he was uh, president during the Roaring Twenties, and really was the ins part of the inspiration for my second book. I learned so much about the 1920s that I didn't understand, and Calvin Coolidge uh, partnered with kind of advertiser Bruce Barton. Uh, founder of BBDO uh, out in New York. And he was the guy who started to figure out how to mass market presidential campaigns. It was the first time that Bruce Barton figured out how to make Kelvin Coolidge into a product with features for different audiences. Just revolutionary, changed politics. Everything most people hate about politics dates back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so two more. We got uh, five best. We got two more, and we're going to keep going backwards. James K. Polk, dark horse for sure. Uh, most people don't know that. He was only president for four years. Uh, but when we think about the United States before Polk and the United States after Polk, this was basically the double the size of the United States uh, with the uh, captured territory from Mexico. So it was the first time that sea to, sea to shining sea, kind of it was the idea of manifest destiny, and Polk was the one who figured that out. So from a product perspective, made the United States essentially what it looks like on the map today wow. with a yeah. couple of changes. And most people don't know that. And most people don't think about that as marketing. But in product development, we think about like, Hey, you acquired Amazon, acquired Audible, Amazon acquired Zappos. Those are the sorts of things you think about. Okay. Uh, last one. Last one on the five best. James Madison. Hey, during the Revolutionary War, it, 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 it was you know kind of unlike the Revolutionary War. Really, the War of eighteen twelve was kind of the first time that the United States was the United States of America, not the United States of America. You know if. It, kind of prior to 1812, you were a Virginian, you were a Pennsylvanian, you were a New Yorker first, and you were an American second, uh, because that's just kind of the way it was back then. You you were, you know, maybe at best you were a New Englander or a Southerner, but really the War of 1812 is the first kind of unified conflict, and it kind of James Madison took advantage of that to create. Kind of this idea of the United States as a one place and the states subordinate to that. So really kind of a shared uh, purpose and really thought about 
making sure that people thought about this as the United States of America, as a kind of a unified whole. Those are the five best, right? Uh, I know we're going to talk about JFK. We absolutely mm-hmm. will talk about JFK. So we'll 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 put a pin in that one for now. Okay. Is that fair? Fair sure, enough? Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. You ready? You ready for the for the five, five words? Yeah, we're, let's do it. We're, we're gonna go the opposite way. We're going okay. to uh we're gonna start uh you know, we're gonna start early and come later. Okay. Uh, okay, around the uh after you get for, past the kind of the founding fathers and their kids, you know, the Thomas Jefferson's, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, you know, Andrew Jackson, you know, uh, uh, you know, those sort of folks. You get into this kind of weird area around the Civil War where you get some real stinkers. Okay? Uh, Franklin Pierce was a stinker. Uh, very tough. He could have very easily annexed Cuba. Cuba wanted to become a state. Uh, most people don't know that as well. Part of my family is Cuban. And I know that story. They wanted to become a state, and Pierce fumbled the ball. Uh, that's just the best way to say it. Uh, wow. uh, kind of a there's a thing uh, uh, there. There is a uh, kind of a treaty that got messed up, and really it kind of pushed Cuba on a totally different path. So again, we could have been a very different country. Uh, at that time could have been a very different expansion, but that that kind of cut it off right there. Yeah, just, I mean, just think about how different, uh, you know, I mean. Yeah, we'll talk about JFK, right? right I mean, how exactly. different would have that been? Absolutely, right. I mean, boy, that would Changes everything. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, we, we all would have been drinking better rum, I do think. I, I do know that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Boy, they're good at it. Um, so, uh Pierce was the first one. Next one, uh, James Buchanan. Oh, boy. Uh, and it's probably not fair. He was the president right before the, you know, right before the Civil War. But it's not like people didn't know it was coming. You know, if right. you read that era of history, you get this thing called Bleeding Kansas. The war had essentially already started uh, in Missouri and Kansas at that time. And it was a complete mess. And Buchanan was so bad at his job that you could almost anyone would have been better, uh, but you couldn't have almost had worse. Obviously, I have Lincoln. Lincoln is almost his own story. It's almost iconic in his own way. But setting that aside, you get right after Lincoln, and you couldn't have found a worse follow-on than Andrew Johnson. So you just think about the bookends to Abraham Lincoln, James Buchanan, right. and Andrew Johnson, you know, yeah. What a, what a, you just think, what a dumpster fire. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, it, and he had everything going for him. You know, he was a Southerner. He stayed loyal to the Union. He had every opportunity to kind of bridge the gap. And he was just pathologically incapable of doing so. There's a wonderful story in the book I retell about, you know, when he was being signed in as vice president or sworn in, uh, he was hammered, absolutely drunk. Uh, wow. No question about it. He had had... He had had the equivalent of seven or eight full belts of whiskey. Yikes. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I'd be standing. And that's Abraham that's, Lincoln wow. is, is reputed to have looked over and said, I'm surprised he's still vertical. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you know, so be that as it may, you have to really fast forward to get another tough one. And this is tough because there are going to be uh, – 
uh, you know, we're going to we're going to make the left wing and the right wing mad here. So yeah, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. We, do that anyway. we, are, we do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, you should do that anyway. Um, uh, this not not a big surprise. Jimmy Carter was a was a tough one uh, right. during president. At, once he left the presidency, everything changed. Yeah, right. much better post president than a absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, you know than a president. But that kind of crisis of confidence speech. He never used the word malaise. By the way, you can read the whole thing. I've read it. I've watched it several times to write the chapter. And you know, funny story. The I, I reached out to a. Uh, uh, you know, an author who kind of wrote about that's, you know, that specifically, and boy, he was not happy with me for, you know, for taking that perspective. Uh, I won't name names, uh, but there was an interesting, uh, interesting kind of note in his book, and it was a guy uh, on on Carter's staff who was a bartender, and. One of the most insightful quotes, and I think your uh, your readers or listeners probably don't know this, and uh, will will probably get a kick out of it. He said that uh, people listen to political speeches like they listen to rock music. They they kind of get the rhythm and the beat, but they don't remember the words. And once you kind of hear that, you're like, oh, I totally get it. I'm just listening to how it makes me feel. Right. Not a, it, it, the words. Can, I mean, because name a rock and roll song and then tell me the words. Good luck. But everybody can get the it, that's why you can get a rock and roll song. They have those challenges where, like, hey, I'm going to give you three notes or four notes or five notes. You guess the song. Not a problem. I give you four or five words of Stairway to Heaven. I mean, it, like, you can get it from the first chord. But you might. How many? How many times have people gotten the words totally wrong on rock songs? Sure. So it just sort of doesn't matter in the same way people think it does. You know, yes, I have to think about media. People love analyzing political speeches. Most of the rest of us don't care. No, they just don't think about it that much. No, you know, and that, that's one thing about uh, JFK that we'll talk about is JFK made people feel a certain way. Right. That's part of what made him effective is just that persona. And people think, well, you know, he, you know, his the words in his speeches are really epic. Well, well, sure, some of them were, and a lot of them were real stinkers. Uh it it didn't matter. He just, when you looked at him, you felt a certain way. Right. That, that was key. And when you looked at Jimmy Carter, you felt a really different way. Right. Uh, you felt just like you felt depressed. You know, you felt like you were being scolded. I, I watched that speech, and I'd invite your listeners to go watch that speech again if they if they're feeling too happy about themselves. <laughs> uh, go check that one out. Um, What's the quote, Jason? I think the quote is, uh, and and I I never remember who the people I'm quoting, but uh, it's pe- people don't remember what you what you say to them; they remember the way you make them feel. I believe that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. and. Kind of another way to say that another way to say the same thing you know that's you know they they won't remember they won't remember what you said they remember how you made them feel and that's something that when you think about you know politicians and you think well you know this politician was you know you know you know couldn't start a fire rubbing you know rubbing two matches together uh you think well did he make you feel good uh, and you know, that's the sort of thing that, you know, people think about when we, 
when they talk about kind of best and worst. Now, uh, and we will be right back. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Residence Inn by Marriott in Scranton. Discover comfort and convenience in Scranton. If you're planning a short or extended stay in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, Residence Inn by Marriott, located at 947 Viewmont Drive, will ensure your stay is nothing short of exceptional. Their friendly team is committed to providing you with top-notch service and a memorable experience. Whether you're in town for business, leisure, or a bit of both, Residence in Scranton has you covered. They offer free Wi-Fi, an indoor pool, meeting and event space, complimentary hot breakfast, a fitness center, and an on-site market. And Residence in Scranton is pet-friendly. You're home away from home. Residence in Scranton features spacious studio, one-bedroom, and two-bedroom suites, and all are complete with a fully equipped kitchen. There's a cozy fireplace lounge and an outdoor barbecue area. Call 570-343-5121 or go to Marriott.com for more information. Residence in Scranton, where hospitality meets home. That's Enough Out of You is also sponsored by Fairfield Inn by Marriott. Located at 949 Viewmont Drive in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Fairfield in Scranton exemplifies travel made easy. They offer stylish guest rooms with plush bedding, complimentary hot breakfast with healthy options, one of the area's premier hotel fitness centers, as well as nearby dining options. While you're staying at Fairfield Scranton, make sure you check out some local attractions like the Scranton Cultural Center, the Electric City Trolley Museum, Montage Mountain Resorts, and the Steamtown National Historic Site. Catch a Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins game or a concert at the Mohegan Sun Arena or take the historic Lackawanna Coal Mine Tour. Fairfield in Scranton is in the center of it all. Experience comfort and convenience in Scranton at the Fairfield Inn by Marriott. Call 570-343-5121 or go to Marriott.com for more information. Fairfield in Scranton, where hospitality meets home. Kind of my the one I get in the most trouble for is uh, putting our our most recent uh, full term president in here, Donald Trump, and <laughs> because most people feel like, hey, it's Donald Trump has he he's great at commanding a room, he is great at tapping into you know different feelings, uh, he is great at uh, a clever turn of phrase or a nickname, and he is uh, he is outstanding. Uh, at that sort of thing, love him or hate him, he can make a he can make a a nickname stick like glue. Uh, he can change the entire conversation that way. Here's the problem: uh, it's really easy to persuade people who already agree with you. Uh, and if you can't persuade people who don't, you're not good at marketing. Right. That's just that's not ideological. Right. That's just the facts. And he has done a really bad job at persuading people who are not already predisposed to agreeing with him, despite multiple opportunities to do so. Right. It seems pathologically incapable of doing that. And, it, you know, if you take a look at the best, you compare him to like Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan had something, it had something called Reagan Democrats. You remember those? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We all do. Uh, there are a whole bunch of them. My parents were. <laughs> yeah. You bet. Yeah. You bet. 
you know, my parents were too. And, yeah. you know, there are, there are no Trump Democrats. Right. That's for sure. I, I mean, getting back to Reagan for just a second, you know, I mean, Reagan, uh, you know, as as you said, Jason, he he made you feel good, right? When even when things were were going horribly wrong, um, you know, you could still you almost kind of thought, okay, once you know, once Reagan addresses the nation, things are going to be okay because he had a way of of talking, a way of you know, kind of putting people at ease, uh, whether it was a joke or you know, just his demeanor. Um, you know, you could always sort of count on him. And, you know, and I was just like you, I was a kid in the eighties and, um, I would always watch the, uh, you know, the, the presidential addresses, the state of the union, and just, you know, just to kind of watch him and, and see how he spoke. Uh, Trump was the exact opposite, you know, I mean, he, he alienated so many people and couldn't figure out how to get in, how to get them back. Um, but what I will say, uh, Jason, is this. Trump is more of a brand than anything else. And, you know, I, I, I took a couple of marketing classes in college. I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but I did learn about brand loyalty. And I don't think there has ever been a president that has brand loyalty the way that Trump does. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think there's a, you know, people ask me, well, what's the limit of looking at a president as a CMO? You know, and that's it. You know, it. Really, that's kind of what it comes down to is when you take that to its logical conclusion and you say, well, it's only marketing and it's only brand. That's what you end up with. You, right. know, you end up with a uh you know, because brands are exclusive things, right? You know, right. where, you know, if you have, you know, you have an Apple phone, you're probably not going to get a Google uh, Android phone. They are, they tend to be mutually exclusive things. It doesn't mean you have to hate an Android phone or hate an Apple phone or vice versa, but many people are weird and they do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the president of the United States, when you, I, I might argue that it's, that going that way kind of takes it to a logical extreme that's kind of the wrong, that's down the wrong path. I feel like the president is a, not a president, you know, they're not a brand. They're not kind of cultivating an audience that is distinct from another audience. They are kind of stewards of the American brand, kind of the American mm -hmm. idea. And that's something bigger than an audience. It's bigger. It's a driving purpose. You know, right. like a, a Simon Sinek would say that is a, you know, a no adjust cause. Sure. And, you know, I feel like Donald Trump's version of brand is a very narrow definition of the term. It is, you know, it's workable from a consumer marketing perspective, but it's somehow lacking you know, when it comes to that. And here's where it kind of, it falls down. And we can see that now as, you know, we, we think about the next campaign kind of heating up. And I'm not very bullish on, I, I know most people are kind of think at least on the right wing, feel like, well, it's kind of Donald Trump's to lose. And I'm not so, sh not so sure that that's an inevitability. And kind of here's why, you know, if you were to think about, and I think it's a good way to put it, that Donald Trump is a brand, well, brands have to be new. They've got to be fresh. They always have to have something kind of new going on because it's the the, the sure. most, they're, they're uh, 
brands don't have four letter words. Brands have three letter words. The most important ones are Y-O-U and N-E-W. Right. You know, so when I think about that, what new ideas is he talking about? What 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 new things? You know, back in 2016, he had the wall. He had there were the things you could agree with or you don't, but they were they were simple things. They're easy to get their hands around. They were new. They sounded like new ideas. Well, what what's there now? You know, it's just more right. of a I'm mad. Like, well, that's right. That's not enough. And for a brand, that's not enough. Now, for a you know for a political campaign. You know, you could build on kind of anger and resentment, but as a brand, you can't. Brands are all about the new, the exciting, the, you know, the novel. And he's not anymore. Uh, I think that uh, folks like Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, have a real edge there. And I, uh, it would not surprise me at all to see one or both of them uh, uh, jump to the top. Uh, before the uh, before this is all over. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. We have a long way to go. Um, I think, you know, what what a lot of people are, are saying now, not to get into a whole political discussion here, uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people are saying they're kind of running to be, uh, you know, for the for the VP slot. Um, but I, I, you know, I agree with you in that he is there's nothing new. You know, I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to tell a Trump rally speech, you know, from yesterday, uh, you know, any different from two years ago. They're probably, you know, very, very similar. Um, what I will say, though, is to his base, it, it doesn't seem to matter, you know, and and that's something that that is kind of a new um, <laughs> something we haven't really seen before. You know, we we generally with politicians, and I'm talking about more broadly, not not necessarily, you know, a base, but well, more broadly, we we like to see you know, new ideas, obviously things are changing all the time. And we, we want to hear something new, as you said, from our politicians. And, and there's just, you're right, there's nothing new coming from him. And I think that's part of the problem, though, because when you, you look at Trump and, and you just look at him as, as a, mar from a marketing perspective, I mean, he's not even trying to market his brand to the people that, that you know, don't agree with him. He's not even right. attempting that. He's just solidifying his base. And, you know, to, to, to your point, Jason, and, and yours too, Bill, you know, he, he's not offering anything new. He's basically just offering, you know, he's he's on this like vendetta he's going to have against people who, you know, in his mind wronged him. And that seems to be his focus this time is how he's going to get back at those people. Well, think about that for a second. You know, you just like, yeah, there's a there's a smaller and smaller group, uh, a much smaller group in, than in 2016 that is responsive to that sort of message. Yeah, they're, they're out there. Yeah, but it's it's a smaller group than it was before. It's tighter, but it's smaller. So uh, let me ask you, can I ask you a question, Jason, real quick? Kind of a hypothetical thing. Um, let's say, you know, tomorrow you were placed in charge of his, of his uh, you know, his campaign, right? What would you say to him? to to you know because you you have a you know you from a marketing perspective you know what he needs to do in order to broaden his appeal what would you say to assuming he would you know even listen what would you say to him yeah that's a big if isn't it probably end up firing jason but, yeah he doesn't have a good history of that uh, no. i i would ask uh, i'd ask a question and the question would be what's what's this cycle's wall 
you know, build the wall. What's the Mm -hmm. thing? What's the, you know, what's the drum you're going to beat? You know, because even if you didn't, it was totally unrealistic and it was, wasn't going to happen. And what's the thing that could, that could reach out to people who are, yeah, your base is going to agree with you, you know, whatever you say, but what's that thing that is going to, you know, you know, is going to hit that. Maybe it's about inflation. Maybe it's whatever it is. It it almost doesn't matter what it is, but something that's going to capture that kind of, uh, you know, what's going to, what's going to capture that imagination. Uh, The nice thing about a wall is it was, it was a physical thing. Uh, You know, that was that uh, same idea of Bill Clinton in the, you know, in the nineties was, you know, it's the economy, stupid. You know, just keep beating that drum uh, because if you don't have anything and you're just talking about a lot of different stuff, well, who's going to pay attention to that? Right. Even going back to, uh, you know, to uh, George, you know, George Bush, the the father, his, you know, read my lips. Right. No new taxes. That's that was the drum he was beating the entire time. Yeah. It's, you know, it's almost like what's that, you know, what's that, what's the slogan, what's the message and how do you, how do you keep it really simple so that, you know, most people think about, you know, when, when they're into politics and some of your listeners are really into politics and some really aren't. The ones who are into politics have, they've been thinking as we've been talking here, and they've got a whole list of things. They got different, different avenues, and they got all the all these different arguments, they kind of pro and con. Most of the other people, and you know, those of you who really aren't into politics, and I kind of count myself among you, uh, you're not thinking about it that much. And sure. you know, for those people, and that's most people, by the way, you know, don't, you, you can't read the opinion section of the, of the newspapers. Those people are disproportionately into politics. That's just who they are. Most people, 80, 90% of people don't really pay much attention until the summer before the election, if that. Right. Uh, yeah. So what is that thing that people can kind of remember? They're not going to think about it much at all. Uh, they're going to, they're going to kind of look at the horse race. They're going to see, does, does this thing feel right to me? And that's that's the thing that build the wall felt right to a lot of people, even if it didn't make a lot of sense. You know, and it's all it really is about kind of how how it does make people feel. And a lot of folks just they it, that whole that whole thing rubs people the wrong way. They think, well, it's politics. There there should be something more to it than that. We should be more civically minded than that. That's great. I mean, the you know, when that, uh, you know, when the unicorn shows up at my door and I can ride it off into the sunset, I'll let you know. But until then, until yeah. then, we have to, you know, we have to deal with the world as it exists, not the, what the world that we would like it to be. Yeah. Agree. All right, Sean, where do we want to go from here? Do we want to talk well, about, uh, you know, I, I just like to comment uh, on your list there, Jason, uh, the best and the worst. I mean, a fascinating list. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan, I agree with you, even though, you know, I don't I don't really like Reagan as a president. But I've said that on the show before. But it's interesting because that's not the question about what kind of job he did. But as a marketer, there's no doubt about how great Ronald Reagan was as a marketer. I mean, that's. I definitely agree there. Um, he's in the five best. And Calvin Coolidge is very interesting because Coolidge is really the the person who linked uh, religion to politics, which I'd like to get into um, if we have time today, get into that a little deeper. 
And then on your your five worst, I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, Trump definitely because you know he didn't he didn't market to the people who who didn't agree with him. And then Carter's interesting because, uh, like you already mentioned, I think Carter was was did so many great things after he was president, but as a president, he just he just couldn't sell that idea uh, the American way. I mean, it just I, I definitely uh, agree with that. Uh, so it's just fascinating. But let's talk about some of the people who aren't on this list, Jason. Yeah. And of course, that's going to be, you know, our, our favorite is JFK. So can we talk a little about how, how JFK uh, marketed the American idea? I think, you know, and your listeners will know this uh, uh, really well, that uh, JFK represented a generational change. And there have been a few of those, right. you know, in, in American history, you know, where kind of a new generational takeover, uh, really similar to what happened with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, when McKinley was shot and passed away and uh, Roosevelt became president, you know, he was the youngest president to that time. So there are a lot of parallels there. Uh, very interventionist, uh, you know, very up there. And you, and you can kind of listen to some of There are some recordings, uh, early recordings of some of his speeches. And your listeners might be really surprised to go and find some and how, yeah, you know, he was this kind of uh, nasally voiced New Yorker. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Roosevelt, uh, Teddy, at least, uh, Franklin had very, it, it, Franklin had soft butter in his voice that just, there's something about that kind of patrician sort of, uh, tone and cadence, but, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was like, it, the words couldn't come out of his mouth fast enough. Uh, he was so much energy. And when you think about that, just like, well, how did Teddy Roosevelt make you feel? He made you feel like the guard had changed. This was new. We could do anything. And think about JFK in the same way. Like he's young. Right. He's out there. We can do anything. We can go to the moon. Heck yeah. Let's we're going to the moon now. You know, and back in uh, Teddy's day, it was we're making the Panama Canal. You know, we're doing, you know, kind of the 19th century equivalent of these kind of major sort of things. We're going to build a new Navy. Heck yeah, we're going to build a Navy. You know, we're going to, we're going to do all of these things that there was so much optimism uh, at that time. And that was such a similar sort of thing that you, you know, that you felt with both of them. So there is part of it that was they were the right person at the right time. And I'm not saying that anyone could have come around at that time, you know, uh, you know, I'm not sure that uh, Richard Nixon would have, uh, you know, would have represented the same thing as JFK did uh, had Nixon won the won the election, uh, right. which was really close, as you mm -hmm. know. Uh, I'm not sure that would have been the same thing. So you kind of had to have the right person at the right time. But uh, this is one of those times where sometimes you just get lucky. And Teddy Roosevelt and JFK were, uh, it would be hard to imagine a a better choice for that moment in time from a, you know, how did it make America feel, you know, and how it really not only represented the changing of the guard, but personified it. And there are a lot of disagreements that people have about both Teddy Roosevelt and JFK, no question. Uh, there are a lot of things that they epically screwed up on, but uh, when, why are they looked back on so fondly? Well, that's exactly why. Changing of the guard, new generation, 
this kind of uh, optimism that is always a winning strategy. Uh, optimism always is. And if you can really personify it and own it, and that's why, I mean, that's maybe my, you know, a little bit of my bias showing is that, yes, I, I understand from a persuasive perspective, negativity can win. There's no question about it. Uh, negative ads work. Uh, we know they work. Uh, we say they don't work so that you don't get really jaded, but they absolutely work. Uh, but long-term optimism works. I mean, you can uh, agree or not with like a Barack Obama. There was optimism there and there was excitement and hope and all of those things. Optimism works as a strategy, uh, you know, to get people on board. And I think that's the biggest thing that I think about from a marketing perspective with JFK is how he was able to capture that optimism, hone it and weaponize it. Right. And I think, Jason, one of the interesting things about JFK is, is you know, he had to market this this American idea, but he also, he, you know, studying him like I did, he had a lot of ideas that went against the grain. For instance, you know, he was a peace president in a time where there was, was multiple potential for wars everywhere. And he was surrounded by a lot of hawkish, war hawkish advisors and, and people in his own cabinet. And then another thing is, you know, he he was set on, you know, civil rights. And that was that was difficult in the Democratic Party because the Southern Democrats were so against that, that he actually had to work around that, you know, going through, um, you know, uh, different ways uh, through the court system and uh, with executive actions. Um, it's it's difficult, you know, to to go through all that and and still market the the ideas he was trying to market. And then you think about what you said earlier with uh, Franklin Pierce and and how Cuba could have became a state. That would have changed so much because uh, by the time JFK comes in office, I mean he's inheriting this this situation in Cuba that's really getting worse. And, and of course, we know the Bay of Pigs was a disaster, and and everything that led down the road, the the anti-Castro movement and, and Fidel Castro and and later Kennedy would would try to uh at the end uh detente with Castro. And, and there's just so many things that would have changed if Cuba was a state. I mean, that's just fascinating to think about. Yeah, I think uh, you know, when you when you kind of go back to the you know, there are so many things that just are odd quirks of history, you know, like the you know the that there is an island of that size that close to the united states mainland it's really the only one right. that would have worked right. uh you know none of the bahama islands would have worked they're too i mean they're basically sandbars you know right. uh you know the dominican republic and haiti uh puerto rico those are just aren't close enough you know they right. just wouldn't have had that same like 90 miles 90 away. miles right 90 miles. That's just so compelling. That's, that's a, you know, it's not compelling to say, you know, 208 miles away in Port-au-Prince. Like, eh, it seems right. far. It just seems far. Even though it's not, it, it seems far. Uh, and it's, you know, it's funny that, you know, kind of how things uh, developed in Turkey at that time, because those two things are really, we know now that they were very connected, you know, missile right. sites in Turkey, the missile, missile sites, site. Yeah. Yeah, that we didn't know until many years later that it was a, hey, guys, uh, we'll take our missile sites out of Cuba if you get them out of Turkey. Turkey. 
because, you know, the Russians have always been really notably concerned about people invading over land because it's happened a zillion times. Right. Sure. Uh, you know, so they're really, you know, that, that gets them nervous. And, you know, it, just to think about, okay, well, things could have shaken up differently during the fall of the Ottoman Empire uh, at the end of World War One. Had that happened differently, sure. uh, Turkey could have been a very different place at that time. And how might that have changed that calculation? It just, it's so unknowable. And that's why when people say, well, history rhymes, no, it doesn't. Like we can't predict the future. If we could, you know, all history professors would be millionaires. Uh, right. But history rhymes. There's certain themes that, you know, and patterns of behavior that tend to, you know, that, you know, that tend to come, you know, come again and again. And balance of power is one of those things. And what makes people nervous? And proximity is just one of those things that makes people nervous. It's no surprise that, you know, the, you know, the reason America kind of has the mindset it does is we have two very weak neighbors to the north and south. It's if you if, 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 think about that difference in perspective than the German perspective, for instance, uh, surrounded by very strong neighbors on all sides at all times. Right. Very different. Very different just kind of mindset and how you approach the world. And we will be right back. DK's Corner, located on 802 East Lackawanna Avenue in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. Visit DK's Corner for hot and cold sandwiches, soups, salads, pizza, and delicious breakfast, including breakfast sandwiches, specialty coffees, and DK's Razzle Dazzle Flavor Shaken Espressos. And take it from me, the best cheese steaks around. Follow DK's Corner on Facebook and Instagram, or call them at 570-209-0278 to find out about their daily specials and catering. Check out DK's Corner, Oliphant's Little Hoagie Shop, and we thank DK's Corner for sponsoring That's Enough Out of You. That's DK's Corner in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. Uh, Bill, you got any names you want to give Jason that's not on the list? So um, not necessarily the name of uh, of a president, but, um, well, <laughs> so a, a candidate. And, and, and I did kind of want to talk about um, Hillary a little bit and you know, what she could have done to, um, you know, maybe to market herself better because, you know, there, there was so much negativity around her. I think it was sort of the combination of people didn't like her, um, you know, and, and here was this, you know, boisterous uh, personality running against her that, you know, people knew. And um, I, I, you know, Jason, I saw, this was, you know, well after the the 2016 election, Hillary was on uh, the Howard Stern show and she did like a three hour interview with, with Stern. And she really, you know, showed her herself. She talked a lot about her childhood and she talked a lot about her relationship with Bill and how it is real. And, you know, it wasn't a, a handshake, um, you know, uh, uh, arrangement. And, you know, I think had she done that interview prior to the election, how different things might have been. I feel like she just didn't market herself well enough uh, during, you know, during the run up to that election. Sure, she had some some bad things happen as well. But um, I don't know. What are your thoughts there? 
I think if there's a theme we've talked about today, it's what's most important is the number one thing is how do you make people feel? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the issue there wasn't, you know, she focused, there are kind of two things you can focus on, the stake and the system. Okay? The, the stake is the policy stuff, the what are you going to do once in office, kind of the key issues you want to attack, how you want to attack them. You know, the, you know, it, there can be vision in there, but, you know, it can be really specific. It can get into those kind of policy prescriptions. She, it, no question she, whether you agreed with her, what she wanted to do or not, uh, you weren't going to say that she didn't understand what the, you know, uh, what she wanted to do, that she wasn't, you know, coherent. Right. Uh, you can disagree with it, but she had her ducks in a row there. What she didn't focus on as much was, you know, how to make people feel about it. And, you know, right. think about the, think about the opportunity, the, uh, how much of a layup that really was, you know, the, so many people wanted to say, you know what, the United States has gotten to that point where, you know, we've, you know, we crossed the the barrier, a, uh, you know, black person became president, you know, now a, you know, a woman can become president, the, you know, what are we all going to tell our daughters that, you know, no, you can, you know, it's not just President Barbie, you know, there's, you can actually look up to a, you know, you know, to a real person who became president. It was such a layup, such a layup. Uh, to especially, just yeah, especially since I mean, she she might have been the most qualified person ever to run for president. You know, not just woman, but person. I mean, if you, you think about what you know, what her life was, uh, and everything she had done up until that point, it's, it's just yeah, it's really hard to think of people. We didn't really have people who were that qualified. Uh, you know, we would have to look back to uh, Adams Jefferson. Madison, Monroe, you know, people like that. I mean, like probably the most qualified person before Hillary Clinton might have been John Quincy Adams, uh, John Adams' son, right. who was a diplomat, secretary of state, you know, one of the smartest people, uh, you know, the United States has ever produced, the best diplomatic family the United States has ever produced, the Adamses, uh, you know, father, son, and grandson, you know, uh, Charles Adams. Uh, you know, you have to go way back to find people who are really at that level of skill. You know, it, even like an FDR was not quite at that level and did not have the kind of government experience that uh, Hillary Clinton did. Not just being, you know, an, ob an observer in her husband's uh, two terms, involved in those terms, senator, you know, uh, two terms, if, if memory serves, Right. Uh, Secretary of State. Right. Uh, I mean, come on. I mean, what more are you looking for? You know, so it's almost like she felt like she needed to kind of hit all of those. She felt like she had to overcompensate for competence. And I think there's, you know, people talk about gender things like that. And I, I, there's there's certainly some truth to that. But just the ability to kind of paint a picture of what it means for her to be there was was a miss that's unfortunate yeah i totally agree jason where where would you put richard nixon on this list would he be closer to the five best or the five worst i you know i in in my chapter on richard nixon uh you know i i talk about you know he, he's such a polarizing figure 
you know, it's hard to rank anyone near the top who resigned. You know, you, you can't do that. But on the other hand, had right. he it, it had, you know, had he not been frankly mentally ill and been able to hold it together, uh, and you know, for a little while longer, he probably would have been in the upper middle tier uh, for sure. He did a lot of things that a lot of people feel are pretty despicable. Uh, you know, kind of a southern strategy, but right. from a marketing and political perspective, uh, he was quite astute uh, and quite good at what he did. Uh, you know, obviously having Kissinger around and other people to help was uh, was a big win. But I think about you know someone like that, and I, what I talk about in the book is let's set all that aside and just look at the numbers. Uh, what happened during that time, and what you discover is that. Uh, things actually went pretty well uh, during the Nixon years. You know, uh, you know, the United States, uh, you know, and this was a, a period of economic expansion, increasing wages, uh, all of those sorts of things that, uh, you know, where you measure what quality of life for the average American uh, went way up during that time. Poverty went down, uh, you know, the... You know, when you think about like, okay, well, how were, yeah, was that just, you know, kind of privileged people? Well, no, even people who were poor and, you know, kind of in the deep south, they saw their fortunes uh, increase and rise during that time as well. You know, so, yeah, I, I it's such a missed opportunity, really. Uh, you know, he had that potential. He was a president. He was president during a time when boy, you, you really could do no wrong. You did. He had all the, he had all the face cards and still found some way to let the dealer be. That's too bad. Right. Mm. Yeah. Of course the proof was, you know, the landslide over McGovern. I mean, McGovern only won one state, Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've seen those sort of, you know, we've seen those sort of things before where hey, gosh, you're just being handed. Uh, you're handed all the cards. You're handed, you know, the best possible situation. You're handed the most powerful economy in the world, you know, uh, and yet you still find a way to bust at the at the blackjack table. Uh, right. It's it's uh, it's too bad. I mean, it's he's not he's certainly not the first president to be mentally ill, uh, but uh, the one that probably had the worst. Uh, you know, the worst impact, kind of the worst possible timing. Uh, not a not a great time for that to happen because things were getting tense. And, you know, we needed some, you know, we needed something a little, we needed better leadership during that time, didn't get it. And then, you know, going back to Carter real quick, I mean, he, he had, he was, he had the unfortunate uh, position of, you know, trying to clean that mess up. And uh, almost like a, uh, you know, like a, like a CEO of, of, a, of a company, you know, if a, a scandal happens within, within the company and the CEO gets fired and the new guy has to come in and try to clean it up. It's almost a thankless, almost an impossible task, no matter what. Well, you well if you think about like tough for Carter, think about Ford. Sure. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Completely unelected, you know, right. so he was appointed, you know, so he was right. the first unelected yeah. Uh, you know, president. Yep. And, yep. you know, imagine uh, inheriting that, you know, that steaming turd. <laughs> and and what, what people forget is he he was handed two, not only the uh, 
you know, what to do about, uh, you know, former president and God, what do you do? I mean, just the, the kind of thought process there. And it wasn't obvious uh, what you were supposed to do. Uh, but the other one was uh, draft dodgers. You know, mm. people who were right. uh, objected to the draft. There are a whole right. lot of people. We forget a whole lot of people moved to Canada right. during sure. that time. Yeah. And what were you going to do with people who violated the law? Because if you had to call people up for another conflict and people thought they could get away with it, they could get away with not showing up for the draft. That's combat. Right. I mean, that's yeah. the sort of thing that a commander in chief has to, you know, that that's one of those things where, yeah, that that hasn't changed much since, you know, we were throwing rocks at each other. If you're not going to show up and fight, uh, someone stronger is going to come in and take over your stuff. That's mm -hmm. just, I mean, ask uh, uh, ask the Ukrainians about that, right? You know, like you got to be you got to be ready to your your boys have to you know get out there and be ready to pick up a rifle. Uh, you know, we don't like to think about that much. You know, it's certainly not a real marketing question, but it is when you think about how you communicate uh, to people. And so I, I think uh, I, Carter had an opportunity. I think I just don't think he was well suited to the job. Uh, and I think it, the opportunity was uh, Ford did the dirtier work. Sure. Uh, you know, then uh, Carter was handed like, okay, fresh start here. Let's find a way to make this better. And yeah, he was handed some bad cards too. No question. Uh, but just he, he struggled uh, for a number of reasons that, uh, uh, you know, part personality, part situation, part timing, uh, part bad advice. Uh, but, you know, it was really after he after he left the presidency, I think, uh, really blossomed into something that yeah, really left and right wing folks now can be really proud of. Yeah, right. absolutely. And last one for me, Jason, uh, what about Bill Clinton? You know, that's a, it's another case where there was a little bit of that kind of generational shift. He represented a little bit of a kind of a newer face, right? Um, you know, uh, the the thing that I, you know, that I feel that he, you know, he, he clearly was a strong communicator. He clearly understood, you know, I think the real defining moment for him was when Gingrich took over. Uh, you know, the House kind of had the Republican Revolution in 94, I want to say. I'm just, uh, you know, your, your listeners already know if I got that date wrong. Uh, but when he took over and he said, you know what, I, you know, they, the whole conversation I remember was, well, is the president even relevant anymore? You know, is Bill Clinton even relevant? Does anyone care? And, you know, six years later, uh, it was pretty obvious that he was and that he was able to kind of turn that situation on its head. You know, he was able to co-opt positions that were right-wing positions. It was the kind of genius that FDR was really good at. FDR was really good at, when people forget, is that there were lots of people on the right-wing and the left-wing, and especially on the left-wing in FDR's time, who basically were looking at Stalin's Russia and thinking, we got to do that thing here. And what FDR would do is he would take part of that position, kind of sand the rough edges off of it, and do just enough to kind of blunt the argument for doing more. Like, okay, hey, we did a little bit of that. We don't need to do more of that. 
Clinton basically stole that playbook. He'd take Gingrich's ideas, sand the rough edges off, make them his, and Gingrich and the Republicans couldn't not do it, you know, because it was their idea. But it just, it was like there, it was kind of like Diet Coke. You know, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of welfare reform, but it was kind of diet welfare reform. You know, it wasn't quite the same thing. You can't really say no, but not quite all you wanted either. And he found a way to make that happen. And that's just a, it's a classic kind of competitive strategy where you just, you, you blunt a, you know, you blunt your opponent's momentum by stealing just a little bit of it. And it's real brilliance. Uh, you know, all the other stuff he did, we can, that's, uh, that's his own deal. Now, like I said, not the, uh, uh, a number of our presidents had their own uh, mental right. conditions. We'll just put right. it that way. Yeah. Bill, do you have any others before we move on to Jason's next book? Well, did you want to touch on the uh, the Calvin Coolidge uh, topic? or? Well, do, Bill, how are we on time? Do we want to do that? And do we still have time to get into the other book? Because we um, can save Coolidge for another time. Okay. He yeah. wants to come back and. Yeah. Because that, that may be a, a whole. Hour yeah, I think that's going to be a whole, yeah. that might be an episode by itself, Jason, if, if you're <laughs> willing to come back. Yeah. That's, that sounds fun. It's actually a wonderful kind of transition point too, because, you know, I, like I said earlier, uh, Coolidge was the first president to be packaged, marketed, branded and sold to the American people like a box of cereal or a new car. And right. it, you know, evangelical Christianity was one of those things. And just as a preview of that, what Bruce Barton noticed is that there was kind of a problem at that time. You know, you think about the evangelical Christian community, which is a big, big, big community, weren't really on board with the Republican Party. Uh, they just, they like, hey, they want to stay out of politics. They're not going to be in it. So they were not reliable Republican supporters. What Bruce Barton was able to do was kind of unify basically what, what some evangelicals today call the prosperity gospel. That kind of, you know, he kind of rebranded Jesus as kind of a business CEO, that he was kind of guiding his disciples, who were his VPs, uh, to kind of create this movement and really rebranded Christianity as, you know, if you were in business, you were doing God's work by doing good business. You know, you had to do business in the right way, but doing business in the American system was akin to, you know, how Jesus would created his movement, uh, you know, back in the day, and that those two things were linked. Evangelicals, uh, you know, Christianity, the evangelicals generally, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, many Catholic groups all kind of signed on to that and said, you know what, that, that makes sense to us. It clicked. And ever since, uh, the evangelical community has been largely a gimme uh, for the Republican Party. They see themselves right. as joined at the hip. And it was sheer brilliance. You can actually read Bruce Barton's book on that. Uh, you know, uh, he had a book on the Bible and a book on Jesus specifically, uh, you know, for that, you know, talk about talk about both of those things where he kind of laid out the case for it. And uh, shockingly effective, just uh, uh, hard to understate 
uh, how transformative that really was. And Coolidge's quote was the business of America is business, right? That was his. That's correct. Yep. Okay. That's at, written by Bruce Barton, by the way. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bruce Barton wrote all his speeches. So, I mean, just think about this, having an advertising genius, and there's no question Bruce Barton was an advertising genius in the top 10 uh, of all advertising folks the United States has ever produced. Uh, imagine having that guy uh, run your campaign and no one had done it before. It's not like he's, you know, kind of marketing that today where like oh, everyone understands kind of how to do it. Uh, I mean, he was playing chess and everyone else is playing checkers. It wasn't right. even close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a good transition point, Sean, if we want to go into, uh, into the, the next book. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, Booze, Babe, and the Little Black Dress. Uh, give us an overview of the book, Jason. Yeah, Booze, Babe, and the Little Black Dress is all about the birth of consumer culture in the 1920s. And, you know, most people think about the 1920s as the Great Gatsby and the Roaring Twenties and, you know, basically the big party that ended with the stock market crash and the hangover that was the Great Depression. So it was it's kind of viewed in these moralistic terms of like, well, be careful about partying too hard because if you do, you're going to have a big Great Depression afterwards. And I found in my own research on Coolidge, Hoover, and uh, Warren Harding, who were the presidents during that time, uh, you know, because I thought that way too. You know, that was that was my, you know, I hadn't really questioned that perspective. And what I learned from doing that work on those three presidents was oh, wow, this is really different. This is when my field was born. You know, the 1920s, we had more, mm-hmm. more products. See, before then, people think about like, well, you know, we, uh, you know, we had, we figured out mass production. We could make a lot more stuff, you know, back in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. Well, that's great. But if people can't afford it, uh, that doesn't really, you you know, you, you can't afford the stuff. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of stuff. Right. You know, so you needed to have a more robust, you know, banking and credit system. And uh, conveniently or unconveniently, around that time is exactly when the Federal Reserve uh, came into being, uh, when the American financial system modernized, was right around that time as well. So you had this modern financial system that could give credit to people reliability. And you didn't need people like J.P. Morgan to swoop in and save things. Uh, It was too big for J.P. Morgan to do anymore. So the Federal Reserve uh, stabilized the financial system. Okay, great. You had them. And now you had the the Committee for Public Information. Woodrow Wilson created a whole bunch of people, trained a whole bunch of people in World War I to sell war bonds uh, and basically professionalized advertising, public relations, and marketing. So you had a whole bunch of people after the war was over who needed jobs. And you had all these companies, you know, these kind of growing companies, uh, and they had money. They could get people to buy things, uh, but they needed to make people desire those things. They needed to market those things. And, And just conveniently, you had a whole bunch of people really ready to help them do it. So it's those confluence of those three things, mass production, mass finance, mass marketing, created this cauldron of this catalyst, really, 
for a complete transformation in the amount of stuff, the amount of choices we had as Americans. Uh, what I think is the most funny thing, and I know this is a long description, but it's a really fascinating topic. Uh, if I were to take you back, we were able to go in a time machine and I get our, our imaginary, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that I, I always remember the old one with the big spinning dial on the back, <laughs> kind, of, uh, kind of a child of that, uh, that era. Yeah. Uh, we go back to 1927 and you drop this off and you said, okay, you got to make your, make a go of things. Well, you, you'd have a mortgage on your house. You probably own a car. You live in the suburbs. You go to Sears to pick up some things. You go to the grocery store at home. You got a refrigerator. Uh, uh, all of that stuff is, yeah, things that seem a little antiquated. You don't have the same tech you do now. But, you, you know, you don't have a computer, but you got the radio and the radios are always on and there's always someone yapping about something. Uh, it would seem thoroughly modern to us. You know, yeah, it'd take us a little time getting used to how to how to drive a Model T, but it's not that hard. Yeah. I take you back just 10 years before that, 1917, 1916, we'd all be lost. Right. We would, we would not know how to operate in the world of 1917 and in 1927 we know precisely what to do our world completely transformed into the modern consumer era within 10 years and it was that the is, 20s that did it yeah that's so interesting wow yeah. wow and yep. no one had talked about that before there are books about the 1920s but they don't really capture that sort of you know when you read about consumer culture you always read about the negative stuff right? That it's all kind of wasteful and blah, blah, blah. And what most people don't think about is, okay, well, yeah, there's, you know, that system has, you know, can, can be wasteful at times. There's no question about that. But are you okay with just having one kind of peanut butter? What if that was it? Or, hey, if it's the winter, there is no fruit, none. Like that, it just doesn't exist. There is nothing about that. There are no choices. There yeah. are no grocery stores. You know, if you, you, you kind of like having like, oh, I, I, I like being able to have a certain amount of choice, you know, and I like being able to choose what I want to do and kind of make my own decisions. I like being able to vote with my wallet. Uh, I can, I can voice my pleasure or displeasure with a company by boycotting its product. Like I like to be able to do that. Well, that's it, that it, really, I think consumer culture is sort of the wrong way to look at it. I think about it as the birth of choice culture, where Americans learned how to choose on mass, mass choice. Right. And that's what the people around that time, you know, the bankers, the industrialists, the marketers completely didn't understand is they thought, and people still think this, that, you know, it, you know, Tim Cook at Apple kind of controls you. Now, not really. If you just stop buying his phones, right. he's done. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, I, I I tell the story in the book about when well, chapter one talks about uh, the product ladder and kind of the the model year change invented by Alfred Sloan and General Motors. Uh, basically, the what took Model T off the you know basically knocked Ford to second place forever. Uh, they never got it back, uh, and it was all about kind of creating consumer choice. And when you read Alfred Sloan's biography, you know, kind of my days at General Motors, 
he lives in mortal dread, or he lived in mortal dread of consumer choice. He knew that it was critical, but he was terrified of the average consumer because he knew that if they chose something different, he's done. He knew it. He knew how precarious the situation was, even though they're the biggest company in the world, the most probably the most successful corporation America ever produced. Uh, he was scared. He was scared of you. Uh, that's something that's what most people's perspective. They just don't think about it that way. They don't think consumers don't realize how powerful they are. Well, and then contrast that with, you know, with Ford saying, right. He said, give them any color they want as long as it's black. Right. He just, he was a weird guy, you know, and <laughs> people who know who've read about him know that, you know, that he, he is, he is, he is not duck. And he just did is kind of that moralistic kind of way that, hey, you only need one car. Right. He just made lots of versions of the Model T and it was make it cheaper, 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 cheaper. And more people can afford it. That's the most important thing. You don't need more colors. You know, if, yeah, you know what you really need, you need to be able to kind of create this. If you want to make your Model T into a plow, well, you need a kit for that. You need different versions of it. You might have a bigger family, so make a bigger version of it, but they're all Model Ts. You don't right. need different cars. Right. You know, you don't need different colors. You don't need different features. And even shock absorbers, guys, were aftermarket parts because uh -huh. you didn't need those. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of what he thought. Like, you you bounced around in that thing and, you know, it, you know, it's like people think the dashboard on the front of the car was you know, it kind of came from the horses, you know, the dashboard, they'd start to run and they would kick up the, kick up the dirt. And that's why oh. you call it a dashboard. Oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't yeah. Know. And it's funny how, you know, those things that <laughs> kind of came from, came from horses. Yeah. I mean, you still use horsepower and all that. Right. Sure. But, you know, we, we, we think about that. We think, well, there's just as much vomit on the front of that dashboard as dirt on the, you know, dirt on the other side, because it was not fun. Hmm. Uh, to drive down those roads, no traffic signals, no, no, nothing uh, at that time, just a uh, crazy time. But it was consumers who responded to Alfred Sloan's idea that, oh, hey, you know what? I want a car with shock absorbers. I want a car that's a different color. I want cushions on the seats. You know, I'd like not to throw up by the time I get a mile down the road. That'd be nice. Uh, you know, and, you know, actually figuring out a way to do that uh, from a manufacturing perspective is not trivial. Anyone who's in manufacturing that's in your listener base will know what kind of a debt they owe to Alfred Sloan's group and how they figured out how to not just make multiple cars within a line, like multiple Buicks, but they had to create multiple Buicks, multiple Chevrolets, multiple right. Oaklands, multiple Cadillacs, you know, multiple Pontics, all of those different cars in a way that made sense to consumers in a way that wouldn't make General Motors broke doing it. Hmm. Uh, just pure brilliance. But in all that, in all that smarts that they figured out, they always knew that if they couldn't satisfy consumer demand, Consumers would just go somewhere else. Right. Simple as that. And they they kept that front and center. They were really the first consumer-centric company. The very first one. 
And that's yeah. why they were so successful. For six decades, they were basically wow. the biggest, the biggest company in the world. And and I think a lot of that is because, you know, they built cars to last, right? They built them to withstand a lot. And, you know, you look at, I mean, you look around today, you don't see, you really don't see cars on the road, you know, older than maybe 10 years. Um, they just don't, you know, they don't last like they, like they did. It's interesting because I, I was, we were, I forget where we were going the other day, but I saw like a 1977 Oldsmobile on the road and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I think I, own, I, think I owned one of those. <laughs> it wasn't registered as a classic car or anything like that. It was just a guy who had this Oldsmobile probably never, you know, never wanted a new, new car and it's still running. And it's, it's just amazing that, uh, you know, that there was so much quality in what they did in those days. And now, you know, things break in two or three years and you just throw them out and get something new. Well, that's one of those issues that, you know, people have with, you know, consumer culture is a, you know, kind of the, you know, the throwaway that you make choices, but you're not really making choices with, you know, kind of the complete life cycle of that product kind of cradle to grave in mind, right? That, yeah, you make a choice, you make a choice to replace something, well, what happens to the thing you replaced? You know, is it, does it end up in, you know, Bangladesh and, you know, some kids are picking through it for precious metals, like old cell phones? You know, there is some real legitimate uh, criticism uh, of consumer culture out there. Uh, but what I, what I look at and kind of how I look at it is, yes, absolutely. Those things are very legitimate. But in that kind of a system, you are able to choose a different sort of product. You know, you're able to say, okay, I, I don't want to do that. I want my laptop or my phone to last longer, and I'm going to fight for right to repair. You know, mm. it's a big, big movement that like, like hey, you know, uh, uh, Apple lost that recently, by the way, uh, you know, trying to kind of keep its closed ecosystem and you're, you're not really able to repair their products. And they have just started to publish repair manuals. Uh, for them. You know, now does everybody do that? No, but a little bit can go a long way. And, you know, that combined with, you know, some regulation that's needed there on extended producer responsibility and, you know, a lot of those programs will help, you know, consumers make better choices. More information is better choice. And price, frankly, is just a form of information. You know, the what is the total cost of that product? You know, the total cost of a cell phone has to include how you dispose of it. Right. So as you start to work the price in, consumers will make better choices. So it really is that kind of what is the role of the government in order, you know, in, in, in my view, uh, and this is kind of shows a little bit of my kind of Austrian economics, libertarian point of view. Uh, some of your listeners will recognize that is make sure that producers cannot because you know, there, uh, companies always try to externalize costs. That's what corporations do. Uh, they are trying to put internalized profit, externalized costs. That's the deal. Uh, sure. That's how business works. Uh, but in my view, the government's part of the government's key role is making sure they can't get away with that. That if it really costs, if a gallon of gas really costs ten dollars a gallon because of all the externalities, you know, uh, environmental cleanup, all of those other things, 
then that's what it really should cost. And if it does, would you make different choices about your car? You bet you would. Uh, you know, we, that's, you know, so I feel like there is, yes, there are definitely criticisms about that. And it, as, as you talk about consumer culture, uh, you, you inevitably go down that, go down that road. Uh, but I always thought the answer to that is more information and more choice, not less choice. And that's why, you know, people like Stuart Chase, who uh, founded Consumer Reports during the 1920s, by the way, uh, basically started consumer review culture. Uh, you know, so, you know, who, how many people read Consumer Reports to make better decisions? Uh, I know I did uh, buying my cars. I, I certainly will, uh, will read it. Right. Uh, if you think about it, but people who know him a little bit better will recognize him as the person who during, who was part of FDR's brain trust, who wanted to kind of copy the Soviet model. He wanted to reduce waste by reducing choice. You know, he didn't think that there should be more, you know, more choices than what people using air quotes needed Right. And that the government should decide what you needed and what you didn't. Uh, that worldview and that perspective ultimately flew in the face of when you give people a choice and you say, well, you can either have a choice or you can have no choice. What would you prefer? Well, one's a winning strategy and one's not. Yeah. Now, getting back to, you know, what, what happened between 1916, 1917, and, and 1927, as we talked about, do you think, Jason, and, and I, I don't want to open up a whole can of worms here because we're, we're running out of time and we've kept you a, a long time and we really appreciate it. But I, I, I kind of want to get your, your thoughts here real quick on if you think that all of that progress that happened in such a, a condensed period of time led to the crash and, and the Great Depression. Was it too much too too fast? You know, uh, probably. And yeah. you know, people think about the Great Depression as a financial uh, crash, and and it was that to an extent. But and the causes of the Great Depression are myriad. You know, there are there are a lot of things, and it depends on whose axe is getting gored, is who's at fault, or or that. But. Really, the more you read about the Great Depression, and this is the follow-up book to Boo's Babe in the Little Black Dress, is a book about consumer culture in the 1930s. Uh, because only when, you know, because choice culture didn't go away, people still made choices. It just, you only figure out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out, right? So uh, you find out what choices were really important to people when they have to make them. You know, in 1920s, you didn't have to really make choices. You just had an abundance of choice. During the Great Depression, you had a much, you had to be really careful what you did. Uh, so we can figure out what was really important to people. It's a wonderful kind of crucible for that. But when you read about the Great Depression, I've read, uh, studied it, not only studied the, the commentary, but the numbers. And it, it what I would invite listeners to do if they really want to know about it is read diaries, read the primary sources. And mm. when you do, what you realize is that the economics and all of the high-minded political stuff and the alphabet agencies and all of that, it really, the Great Depression was a psychological depression more than almost anything else. Right. Yes, yeah. there was an economic angle, but 
people were scared and people were pessimistic. It was just a time that, you know, it, it's almost like the 1920s were too much change, too fast, too much excitement, too much of that. You get Yeah. to the 1930s and it was just the rubber band snapped back. Right. The pendulum swings the other way. Right. So Yeah. it was a kind of an interesting kind of one, two punch on, okay, we're, it, it is almost like a hangover, kind of a psychological hangover. And it took time to kind of work through that. And both are really interesting for looking at how people made choices. You know, in one decade, people learned how to make them. And in the next decade, they learned which ones were important and how to make the important ones, uh, which is really a critical kind of, uh, both of them, from my perspective, are two different ways to look at the same coin. Uh, but yeah, I think you're probably right. That's uh, when I read the diaries and the primary sources, it's most people you read, you know, it's funny, you, you think, okay, well, people in the Great Depression were... fleeing the Dust Bowl and they're riding trains to try to find work. And you, you see the pictures and the stories and the grapes are wrap and all this stuff. You realize that for 85 to 90% of people, people who were employed, maybe not as well as they could be, but they were employed. You know, unemployment peaked at about 25%, uh, but it wasn't that high for long. You know, so really about 10 to 15% was about as bad as it got generally. That meant 80 to 90% of people had work And, but boy, I mean, think about how scary and demoralizing all of those kind of things are when you see it day after day, week after week, month after month, uh, you see people losing farms, you see people riding the rails, even if that's not you, Right. that's scary. That just, Sure. that it changes your outlook. Yeah. And that's, that's really the, uh, You know, the, and the primary sources aren't, yeah, there are diaries of people who, you know, had to kind of flee the Dust Bowl, and those are really compelling. Don't read those. There, there's plenty of, there's plenty on that. Read the story of the people who are reading about that in Time Magazine, and who are like, oh my God, that could be us. And Yeah. how does that change your mindset? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Boy, I, this is such a fa I, Jason, I could talk to you all day about this. This to me is such a fascinating topic. You know, I'd love to get, I'd love to have you back on to, you know, start talking about post-World War II recovery and, you know, how things changed in, in the fifties. And uh, boy, I mean, this stuff is, to me, it's just fascinating. Uh, Sean, I, I know, you know, we're, we're starting to run out of time here. We've kept Jason on a long time. Yeah. You want to uh, get into before we wrap up. Well, I just, you know, mentioned earlier, Jason, when you were talking about the Apple phone and, and how people just say, you know, stop buying it. It, it goes to, you know, the, the shopping addiction. Like so many people are just addicted to a cell phone. Uh, like you'd be people would be lost without a cell phone today. So, you know, to have all these choices they're they are addicted to choice. You know, if you don't like the Apple, you go to another phone or, you know, the iPhone is always coming out with new versions. And it's just, you know, people people would just be absolutely lost without cell phones. I think I'd, you know, addicted to choice is probably the better way to put it rather than kind Right. of, you know, addicted to consuming because we like to choose all kinds of things and they don't always involve, you know, uh, buying things. Now, I would argue that when people have to hand over money for things, it tells you what their choices really are because uh, people have, you know, a, you know, a, opinions are like something that everybody has and we won't we won't use the words as a family show. Uh, You know, 
I, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, choice generally, I'd invite listeners to pick up a copy of Barry Schwartz's book, uh, The Paradox of Choice. And I talk about it a little bit in, uh, you know, in my book, in the conclusion, where choice isn't about making, choice isn't about happiness. Uh, people think about like, well, choice, more choices makes us happy. And we like that. Uh, not really. It's choice is uh, what Barry Schwartz argues is kind of the obvious thing. Let's say you walk into a store and they have 30 versions of a phone uh, and you got to choose between 30 different models. Uh, it, that doesn't make you happy. It makes you anxious because the chances that you're not going to pick the right one are really high. You know, you get nervous about the choices you didn't make because you're you're pretty convinced that you're not going to make the perfect choice. You know, so uh, what he demonstrates really convincingly is that too much choice does not make us happy uh, and that we should be thinking about fewer choices. And that's what a lot of retailers, when you think about Trader Joe's, Aldi's, Target, uh, even Apple, uh, you don't have a lot of choices. They give you a few options, but not too many so that you can feel good about the choice you did make. Uh, but what people get wrong about choice is choice isn't about happiness. Choice is about power. You know, who has it, how they wield it, and what it can do for you. And that's that's the message I'd probably like to leave for people. If there's anything they would take out of this after listening to the, the three of us yabber on for an hour and a half, <laughs> uh, is people feel like they are at the whim of Apple or the whim of Amazon or the whim of these big companies and these big forces outside of their control. And I would just remind you of uh, General Motors was bigger than any of those companies, uh, biggest company in the world, an influence on the economy that we cannot understand today. It just in the 1940s, 1950s, you know, General Motor Control, I can't remember the percentage of the amount of the economy it controlled or influenced. Uh, something like 18, 20%, uh, either directly wow. or indirectly. Wow. Massive, massive organization. Yeah. Lived in perpetual fear of your choice. Your choice to say, you know what, I'm going to go get a four. Or, you know what, I'm going to take the bus. I'm going to live in a place where I can just use mass transit. I'm not going to buy a car. Uh, that's the terrifying part uh, to them. So most consumers don't think of it that way because they see Amazon as this massive company and they are just one person making one choice. Never, ever underestimate the power of just one decision to change things. You know, it just it, it just starts with one person. Sure. One person saying, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. As more and more people do that, businesses will change to accommodate you or they will go out of business. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You right. are the one with the power, not them. Yeah. You remember that. Boy, that's so true. That's so true. I mean, this has been, and we appreciate your time, Jason. I know we, we've kept you a long time here. It's been a blast, guys. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah, you for having me. I've well, really Jason, one, one thing I want to ask you, though, um, I, I know you mentioned earlier you have um, a book, uh, follow-up book on consumer culture in the 1930s, uh, but you have another follow-up. You have two follow-up books you're working on, correct? Yeah, you know, I've uh, I kind of stole this uh, idea from the romance industry. Uh, romance authors love to do 
you know, trilogies and series. It's it's good for marketing and it's good for kind of storytelling. You know, the, the right. you know George George Lucas figured that out at least sure. he did oh, yeah. once. You know, yeah. um, you know, and I thought, okay, well, you kind of have the 1920s as the origin of consumer culture. You know, kind of like here's where how it came to be. You know, 1930s is how you you know how it was tested and challenged. Kind of the Empire Strikes Back, right? You know, it's it's going right. to be bad, going to be bad. Yeah. And then kind of Return of the Jedi is the 1940s. You know, yeah. how how consumers won the war and more importantly how they won the peace. Mm. You know that the you know consumer culture won out as, you know, and we only had to look, you know, another generation past that, you know, consumer culture, American consumer culture, you know, basically was the winning idea. Uh the winning global idea. Uh, everyone wanted to be like the United States, uh, mostly because they wanted to drink Coca-Cola and wear Levi's jeans. Sure. That's a, that is kind of the legacy of the consumer revolution in the 1940s was uh, it won the peace after the war. Yeah. And and I'd love, you know, if you if you would come back uh, on with us, I'd also, you know, I'd kind of like to to get into um, you know, how the, the technology, uh, you know, technological revolution changed things as well with, with, you know, invention of television, how that changed the way we look at, you know, certain things and, and, you know, getting back to our, our early discussion, uh, you know, about the presidents, right? I mean, how now us all of a sudden a president has to look good on television in order for, you know, for that to, uh, to translate, uh, you know, as part of part of their campaign. So if you, you know, all these things are going through my head. Like I said, I'd love to I'd love to keep you on for another five hours. But uh, I think we all <laughs> we all know that, uh, you know, we, we have we, we've done it. We've done enough to your listeners. I think we've done I think enough for, today. Yeah. So, yeah. so thank you so much. Thank Jason. you, Jason. Uh, marketer. No, thank you. Marketer in chief, uh, Booze Babe and the Little Black Dress. Those two books are available on our bookshop. We really encourage everybody to buy them. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Now, thank you both for having me on. Uh, listeners, uh, it was uh, a wonderful to spend 90 minutes with you. Terrific. Thank uh, you, Jason. Thank you. That's Enough Out of You podcast is executive produced and written by Bill Rader and Sean Kane and edited by Bill Rader. The That's Enough Out of You podcast and logo are exclusive property of Bags of Chicken, LLC. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or accounts of this podcast without the express written consent of Bags of Chicken, LLC is prohibited. So don't even try it.